It was February 2022 when Christina Joseph heard the news from Foster's attorneys. Lee Patterson had offered a deal. The prosecution has all the power. And so that's when she decided to use her power, I guess, and say, well, I'll talk, but I will only do this. And no matter what was put in front of her, she only offered one choice. That choice was life in prison without the possibility of parole. Foster's defense team called a huddle to go over talking points. All three attorneys had to be in agreement before they could move forward. The defense team also met with Foster to explain his options. Having that conversation with our client of whether you want to go to trial and have death still be on the table or go with this. Foster could take the plea deal with a guaranteed life sentence. Or he could advance to trial with the risk of another death sentence. No one could make the decision for Foster. After all, he was the one who'd have to live with the consequences. I'm your host, Grace Snell, and this is the final episode of Georgia v. Foster. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Georgia v. Foster, a podcast investigating the struggle for justice when the stakes are highest. The death penalty. Our legal system stands on the idea that justice should be blind. But is it really? Who lives? Who dies? Who decides? On this show, we're unpacking the case of Timothy Tyrone Foster, a black man sentenced to death for murder by an all-white jury in 1987. Billy Moore is an independent contractor with the Georgia Capitol Defenders. He counsels people on death row, Although Moore wasn't directly involved in Foster's case, he's worked with dozens of other inmates in Foster's shoes. Moore knows better than anyone what clients are facing. That's because he spent 17 years on death row himself. Moore served time for murder between 1974 and 1991. Moore's been on death watch the 72-hour waiting period before an execution multiple times. But each time, a higher court stepped in to stay his death. Eventually, Moore got out of prison in 1991 with a commuted sentence from the Board of Pardons and Paroles. Moore's spent his life counseling and advising death row inmates ever since. Moore's experience on death row gives him an intimate understanding of the dilemma facing inmates like Foster. Moore advises death penalty defendants to make sure they fully understand their options. Moore emphasizes the role of personal responsibility in his advising sessions with inmates. They have so much things that they're hanging on to. I was high, I was on drugs, or I was brought up in a bad neighborhood. Uh, my parents went to prison when I was a kid. Had so many bad things in their life that we like to use for excuses. Now, they do factor into our lives, and they do color how we make our choices. But the bottom line is, like, God was always impressing upon me, especially after I got saved in the county jail, is... The bottom line is, is you made this choice. No matter how you color it, no matter what you want to drape on it, you made the choice. And if you can get to the point where you take responsibility for that choice, you can be at peace with yourself. Because the way this looks, one way or other, you're going to be here. You're going to be on death row or you're going to be in prison. Taking the case to trial comes with the risk of a death sentence. According to an article from the Christian Broadcasting Network, Moore had... 13 execution dates, all of which were postponed. And at the time when I was on death row, um, you would go to death watch 72 hours before your execution. At that point, the correctional officers, when they came to my cell, boxed up all, bagged up all my stuff and took me to the captain's office. 
in his office, he says, okay, here is your uh, execution warrant for May the 24th. Now you need to let us know that you understand on the 24th we're going to execute you. Then you have to sign your execution warrant saying that you understood that this is the state's um, directive that you're going to be killed on that day. Then you sign a statement declaring what you want the state to do with your body after they kill you. You can be buried at the prison or your family can come and get you. After that, um, they give you a white jumpsuit. He's, and the captain said, this is the suit you're going to be executed in. So you put this on, they give you shoes with no shoestrings, and you're taken from the captain's office to a death watch cell. The cell is, it's like a regular cell, but it's sort of turned sideways instead of in deep because in the front of the cells, there is bars and there's a large white table where two correctional officers sit at the white table and each one have a log book and each officer writes in the log book everything that you do. One officer is tasked with writing every word that you say. The other is tasked with writing every physical move that you make. And so when I seen him writing every time I would do something, I went to the bars and I asked him what was that about. And the officer told me, he said, well, this is our record to show society that in these 72 hours, how we treated you, that we treated you nice and with dignity. You know, before we kill you, we want to make sure we treat you right. And uh, so you're there in death watch and that's the guard's job is to watch you. The whole purpose is to make sure that you don't try to kill yourself so the state can kill you at this set point in time. Foster's second option was to accept a plea deal. That would mean spending the rest of his life in prison with no chance of release. This is a totally different life. It is different culture. And a lot of the guys have been in prison before or they've been in detention county jails before, but there's always been like this little window I know I'm going to get out. I say, you look at things totally different when there is no escape hatch, when there is no window that says after 15 years or 20 years, I'm going to get out. You're looking at a sentence that is closed off. And so you have to come to a point where you're going to have to know how to live this life. Moore says it's a decision inmates have to make for themselves. Your lawyers can't make it for you and your family can't make it for you because you're going to be the one that's going to prison. And you, whatever decision you make, you're going to have to live with that. And if you are not satisfied in the choice that you make, don't make it because it's going to be extremely difficult for you to live in prison knowing that you took this deal when deep down you really didn't want to take this deal. There was very little chance of winning the Foster case at trial. All the evidence was against him. Foster decided to take the deal. On March 4, 2022, Judge William Sparks sentenced Foster to life without parole plus 20 years. Some of Queen White's family members spoke at the sentencing. John Bailey, editor of the Rome News Tribune, recorded their words. Tim McCollum, Queen White's nephew, first heard about the murder while out delivering mail in 1986. A family member pulled up and broke the news. 
Bailey writes that Queen White's family spoke of lasting trauma they endured during years of appeals. But they also spoke of their aunt's loving nature and devotion to Jesus Christ. McCollum said, Aunt Queen got the death sentence executed by Mr. Foster. She didn't get it overturned by the Supreme Court. But I forgive Mr. Foster, as Aunt Queen would have. Gary Parker says his heart goes out to the members of Queen White's family. Foster's defense team secured the deal they were hoping for. But Parker says there are never really any winners in a death penalty case. All of these cases are horrible. They are horrible. Someone's loved one was brutally murdered. Stopping an injustice as far as an unfair trial and violating the person's right. I can claim a victory in that, but there was never anything for me to celebrate because, you know, you, you like when we when this case played out, and I looked at, I mean, that family, you know, I hurt for them. I I, I was relieved that Mr. Foster uh, was not going to face death, but I I don't I I can't discount the pain and the hurt that these folks were feeling even after 35 years. Judge Sparks spoke directly to Foster at the end of the hearing. Bailey recorded the interaction. Mr. Foster, you have wasted your life, but in doing so, you unfortunately wasted another, Sparks said. Today, you have done the only thing you could to end it, and my hope is you have peace for the rest of your life. The Foster case was finally over after 35 years of waiting and struggling. Both Timothy Foster and Queen White's family could at last leave behind all the trials and hearings. Bailey says the case's resolution didn't surprise him. If you would have asked me what I would have put my money on for this resolution, this is what I would have put my money on, this life without parole. Like, I did expect it. I was like, when y'all going to do that? And I remember asking that question a couple times, you know, and, um, you know, getting the response of, if we do it, you'll be there probably, so you'll see. You know what I mean? That kind of thing. Um, because, I mean, you got to go, you know, as a prosecutor, and as a defense attorney, you gotta, you know, you gotta sell it. Bailey says, under the circumstances, he doesn't really think there's another way it could have ended. If Timothy Foster would have been convicted, right, but not sentenced to death, but sentenced to life, he'd immediately come off for parole. Now, here's where we talk about real things, right? You have a, disa a developmentally disabled adult who's known nothing but prison for most of his life. And then you get an instant, uh, and he's out. You know, there's gotta be services, there's gotta be more. Unfortunately, a lot of times they're not. And so you have an extremely high risk to reoffend. You have an extremely high risk for him to go get into some big trouble. And then you have a DA's office that's like, essentially said, there's no way in hell we're, we're gonna do that. You know, um, there's no way in hell we'll let him plead to murder with life. I hate to say it because I really do feel for Tim Foster in a lot of ways. Um, but what personally, would I personally believe he'd be dangerous to himself and to somebody else in the society if just let out? Yes, I do. You know, you can't, you can't put a person through that and expect them to, to just come out and, and be okay. You know, I would love to see that he was okay. You know, in whatever situation he, no matter what he did in whatever situation he was in. But I think that, you know, 
that that Tim Foster just basically let out on parole would hurt somebody or hurt himself. Parker says Foster will spend the rest of his life in a level five security prison. He says inmates are more violent in these places because they know things can't get any worse. Life without parole means that you spend the rest of your natural life in a level five prison. In a level five prison. Right now, I think there's probably close to 1,800 people in those prisons in Georgia who have life without parole, which means that they're not going to get out. They know they're not going to get out. And if they kill anyone, it's not going to make any difference. So my personal experience was this, that if you go to death row, you know, they had not had until Ricky DeBose, who went there a few weeks, they had not had a new person that moved into the neighborhood in seven years. And there's only about 50 people there. And it's been far more than in the past. But once they're there, they get their own space. They get to know each other and the quirks of each other, whatever. Several people who's on death row that came back to retrial and I had to get the cases worked out and they got consecutive life in the life of those folks wrote me letters cursing me out saying if I know it's going to be because on a day-to-day basis other than waiting for them to come to get you to stick a needle in your arm the living conditions on death row is quite different than the living condition of level five prison it is really still the death penalty on a slow ball I mean they don't I mean you're dying every day, but he is, he's alive. And Grace, the thing that, 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 um, that got me about him is that I sat there one day looking at him, we were talking and it struck me. He went to prison as a kid, 19, death row. He spent his whole life pretty much in prison and sitting, looking, and talking. I can say this. Now that death is off and he's back in prison, he's more at home than he would if he'd been a free man. And that, man, that's, that's tragic. I mean, he can function. He will function in that environment perhaps better than he would have functioned if he were out. Or he would take a considerable amount of time and in places like Rome, he wouldn't have had support. I stopped these folks from killing him. I helped stop these folks from killing him. But I, you know, as far as giving him a life, he's back where he was before. And he will die there. He will die there. Parker wonders what could have been done to prevent this tragedy from happening. It's just the general environment. If you, you, you grew up in the projects, you're in a concentrated environment of all of that. Physical abuse, violence, drugs, deprivation, all of those kinds of things. But perhaps with him, the key thing was intellectual disability. I would say his intellectual disabilities and all the attending things that comes from that was probably the strongest factor of him going wrong and getting involved in things that he shouldn't have gotten involved in. If you are intellectually disabled or mentally retarded, as in most of my early years we talked about it, you are bullied. You have all kinds of adjustment issues for people around you. 
most of the time they tend to be loners. Once kids are bullied enough and teased enough and talked about enough or whatever else, they become angry. They become angry. And that anger could easily explode and become violent. That's what uh, has happened to so many Tim Fosters in the world. Lee Patterson said that child sexual abuse and murder cases are the hardest parts of her job. Parker says the tragic reality is that both types of abuse often manifest in the same person's story. All through death penalty cases, there is this little line of a broken child. Every one of them is a broken child. When they hear about the abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, mental illness, alcoholism, alcohol syndrome, drug addictions, I mean, the kinds of things the horrors that kids go through and abuse that they go through. In many of these cases, there's, there's going to be an element of sexual abuse, there's physical abuse, mental retardation or something. I, I tell people all the time, this is, you know, normal people don't do what our client is accused of doing. No one's life is perfect. And, you know, things happen in my life and happen in other people's lives where we may be broken or bruised, but we have support systems to help us to heal. You know, some people don't have that at all. There is nothing like a broken child. There is nothing like a broken child. They just get robbed. They get robbed mm -hmm. for generations unless they're fortunate enough to have somebody come along and have enough of a compassionate spirit to look on them and be compassionate with them to help mitigate the impact of things in the lives. But people like Tim Foster can always suffer one way or the other and cause sufferings to others one way or the other. Parker believes the death penalty is a modern descendant of lynching. He says there are stark disparities in the sentences meted out to Black defendants, especially those with a white victim. If he had killed a Black woman, this wouldn't have been a death penalty case ever. They would play it down voluntary manslaughter, may not even contacted uh, the victim's family and sent him off for 20 years. So if he kills somebody again, so what? The United States is one of the few industrialized nations still keeping a death penalty. But Parker believes attitudes toward the death penalty are changing. He says support for the death penalty in Georgia is a mile wide and an inch deep. Parker says that's largely due to the work of the Georgia Capitol defenders and the increase in black citizens serving as district attorneys in Georgia. The whole idea of, of, of the death penalty now, I think, because there was so much focus is put on the fact now that it's racially driven, that it's making more people back away from it. However, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures, capital punishment is authorized in 27 U.S. states, including Georgia. Parker says death penalty work has taken its toll on him. He told Foster... This case would be his last. And I told Tim, I said, you know, brother, this is it. I've done this 40 years. I, I just can't. I don't have the patience and the energy to keep doing it because I can tell you that over the years, you know, you, 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 you get flashes. You got flashes of autopsy reports, crime scene. You wake mm -hmm. up in the middle of the night. You're thinking about cases. You're thinking about the horror, and there's never any winners in a death penalty case. Never, ever. From the very beginning, it starts out as losers. Parker says the reason he's stuck with this work so long is simply because somebody needed to do it. And I cared enough about people being treated fairly. 
because if folks got treated fairly, uh, oftentimes there would not be a death verdict in these cases. In Georgia, this whole process begins by the decision of one of 49 district attorneys. That's they when they make that choice and decision. I'm going. I'm going to seek death in this case. And at one point, all 49 of those were white men. Courtrooms just fell fell silent when, you know, I'd catch a district attorney and say, you know, we represent the people of Georgia. And I said, objection. I said, Your Honor, they do not represent the people of Georgia. I said, they represent the government of the people of Georgia. So I represent the people of Georgia, one person at a time. I know that the death penalty attracts a lot of attention, focus because it's life and death. But be candid, those, my fight so much for justice for them was if I can get justice for people up here, this child was the most egregious crime, it will flow down here that the people with lesser crime will have greater protection. Georgia v. Foster, a podcast about race, justice, and the death penalty. I'm your host, Grace Snow, and I'd like to thank everyone who made this show possible. Our guests in order of appearance are John Bailey, Gary Parker, Bob Finnell, Eddie Hood, Jerry Word, Christina Joseph, and Billy Moore. Special thanks to Dr. Brian Carroll and Kevin Klein for invaluable guidance, feedback, and encouragement throughout this series. Anna Rich is our primary editor, in collaboration with Stephen Shellhorn and Russell Henley. Music, courtesy of Pixabay.com. For other Viking Fusion productions, head to Viking or find us on Spotify. Thanks for listening. <laughs>